HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program was brought to you by Roth, Wisconsin, makers of the world's best cheese and pioneers in the U.S. artisan cheese movement. For more information, visit RothCheese.com. Hey, what's up? This is Jack Inslee, host of Full Service Radio. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this show, visit HeritageRadioNetwork.org for thousands more. We talk about food. We talk about music. With musical dudes. Finger on the pulse. Snacky tunes.
Snacky Tunes. I am one half your host, Greg Bresnitz. want to take a quick thank you to the Taste Awards, who have nominated us for Best Radio and Best Podcast. Voting is open until December 20th, so if you don't mind going over to bit.do backslash stvote and voting for Snacky Tunes not once but twice, we would really appreciate it. That was just the Darcy's, who are here from Toronto and are stopping here before they head back up north. But first, we have Lee DeRosier from Achilles Heel. Welcome to the show. Greg, thank you for having me. Lee, this is, I mean, I think this is only fair because I've spent many Sundays at your place of work, that you come to my place of work and hang out. You started in Massachusetts. You had three jobs, oyster farming, bartending, and winemaking. It's a shame that none of your jobs led to anything current. <laughs> what did you learn from um, any of the three jobs that began to inform your love of food and your curiosity of into the culinary world uh well growing vegetables i I just remember eating uh really fresh ingredients and just that just blew my mind um there's not a lot of like uh farmers markets up there and, and and that was like the freshest food i've ever had and that just really made me so inspired about food and i was uh just really drawn to um the food scene in New York because of that. And in the oyster farm, what was the daily task that you had? Uh, that was a that was a funny random job. I would just kind of help out somebody who was uh, who was kind of in charge of uh, the oyster flats, and he would you know there would be oyster cages where um, well it was a, essentially a tidal flat, so the tide would go in and out, and you can only go on certain hours of the day. Um, I would really help him dig up a lot of clams and gather clams and then bring those to um, a facility where they would get washed and kind of go out to market. And uh, we'd also like kind of the oysters, we would, we would kind of break off the shells and kind of like, you know, make sure that those were moving along well. And I did that all summer. What's the ratio of, you know, oysters to market, oysters for you to eat when you're, <laughs> when you're out there? And just be honest, you don't, he can't hurt you now. I, <laughs> I would def- like any time I went to a party or you know went out, I would bring a bag of oysters, you know. And he was totally like, totally into it. I mean, when you see it. that many oysters all at once, you kind of it slightly <laughs> devalues in your mind when it's that yeah. that uh, copious. Yeah. And for the bartending, what was the name of the bar that you were at? Now, oh, where in Massachusetts was this? This is um, Wellfleet in Truro area. Yeah. Um, where is it? Was bartending at uh, Winslow's Tavern. <laughs> Long time ago. It's so weird. Yeah. And you mentioned uh, NYC drawing you in. What was it, or what did what was Massachusetts lacking that you felt NYC had before you ever stepped foot in here? Or what did you begin to see in New York City that made you make the the move? Well, young people, for one. I mean, it was just like a really older median age uh, where I was living, um, and. You know, every time I would just come here and, like, eat at restaurants, I would just be, like, just the food, everything just seems so much more delicious. Is there one particular meal or restaurant or dish that you remember that said, I, I just got to come? 
Um, I, you know, I like had the, had a burger at diner, you know, and that was just like huge for me. And, you know, that place was just so cool in every way. And, and when did you meet Andrew in your travels? Um, let's see. I mean, I just kind of showed up on their doorstep one day. I was just like, hey, man, I want to learn how to cook. <laughs> I had a burger here. Yeah, <laughs> I've been exactly. thinking about it. And uh, I didn't actually meet Andrew at that time. I, I was I kind of met Sean, and, and Sean just, uh, you know, he was, he was like, way interested in everything that I was kind of doing and was like, yeah, you should totally work here and, and try cooking. Um, and I got to know Andrew probably, like, you know, years after that. You know, I, I just kind of, like, knew when he was walking around the restaurant. I was like, oh, that's the guy. That's, that's, the, re- the, guy. that's the reason why I'm here. <laughs> Before you came um, to work in the diner kind of empire, mm-hmm. you started working on whole animal butchery. What is the step into that? Because I think that most people would think, yeah, okay, I can maybe break down a, a chicken or, you know, <laughs> yeah. filet of fish. But what is it when you're first staring at a whole animal? What's going through your head? And what were the steps that it took for you to get to a place where you felt very comfortable? Uh, you know, it was, it, I was just always interested in it. And obviously being around um, Diner and that whole empire, they, they had the whole animal butcher shop. And I was just like, oh, that's so cool. Um, and of course I was just a, I was a cook there, so I, I was exposed to it, but, um, I, uh, decided to move to a farm in Martha's Vineyard and, uh, I was just exposed to, you know, how to raise animals and how to, how to grow vegetables and, you know, how to incorporate all those things into a, a, a menu. Um, and, uh, you know, honestly it was just like when I witnessed my first slaughter and, and actually kind of like see the Which whole... Animal? Uh, it was, we actually did three different animals that same day. It was a very, it was a very heavy day. Uh, we did, we did a, a lamb, a cow, and, uh, it was actually a calf and a pig. Yeah. And I mean, it, just the awesomeness of that and the smells and every, you know, it just like, it smelled like beef. It's, sm- you know, it, it was, uh, it smelled like food. It was really incredible. What was the first cut that you mastered? Um, let's see. I mean, my favorite cut ever was was kind of from the the heel of the uh of the steer um called the heel steak and yeah it's really weird there's yeah, I've never heard of that <laughs> it's a super small uh steak and super tender and really deep in color and flavor it's amazing but it's like it's near the shank and it's in like a group of muscles it's very sinewy and and um and you can kind of like carve it out and find it in there. And it's just like this perfect, delicious steak. Is that one of those cuts that you would try to push on people? Or that's one that's on the that's already well known and very revered in the steak world? You know, I, I don't. There's so few of them. You know, like when you work at when you work with whole animals, it's like there's two, you know, <laughs> it's like so you get some two. force. Yeah. So you can't really like, you know, push it and be like, you know, have it on the menu every night. It's it's like a treat. You know, when you get it, it's gonna it's gonna be on. You know, it's, you're gonna have a couple of dishes from that, and that's it. You know. And your time at Martha's Vineyard, uh, also raising vegetables mm-hmm. and working with animals. How did that begin to influence your cooking? Everyone talks about the, the farm to table, but where did yeah. that really begin to change your your thinking? And did it also begin for you to have inspiration for future menus? Totally. I mean, I think learning about <clears throat> um, vegetables in their peak. You know, working with closely with farmers and understanding that, like, you know, there's a week, a year when a green bean is so perfect that doing anything to that green bean on on a dish would be, you know, 
it's just like I learned a lot about simplicity there. Um, yeah, simplicity and ingredients and, and restraint. Which I think served you really well when you took on the head chef position at Achilles Hill in, mm. in May 2015, which I didn't know didn't actually have a kitchen until its third third year. Yeah, I mean, and it's still actually the kitchen didn't change at all, just like <laughs> there was a chef there. Because <laughs> um, I didn't really, when I came on, we didn't really retrofit it too much. I mean, there were, there were a couple of induction burners there. And I just use those, you know. Um, but the real draw for me was kind of like the fireplace. Like we had a fireplace and I was just like, hmm. And I just started like using it to cook. And then I just started lighting fires on the sidewalk and using that to cook. And then it just kind of it, it kind of snowballed from there. What's well, really interesting, we've talked about this before, the restaurant is that the landscape of Achilles Hills, that no mm. one expected anything good to come out of it. It's very much a bar. Or when you walk in, it very much feels like a bar. Right. So what type of creative freedom did you have or guidance did you have from Andrew and the team when you showed up there? And what was the what was currently on the menu and, and what did the direction they give you to, to, to change? Yeah, I mean, Andrew, Andrew gave me complete creative freedom, you know, and um, he we would we would meet weekly and talk about it. And he would um, and he was, you know, what was on there before was just like charcuterie, like meats and cheeses and sandwiches. And he said, I'm not attached to any of these things. Like whatever you want to do, you can do. And uh, I kind of wanted to, I didn't want it to be just a bar where you got meats and cheeses. You know, it's like, it was kind of making a cheese plate. It seems so boring to me. I can um, make a cheese plate. Yeah. <laughs> I've never gone <laughs> to culinary school. I can make a cheese plate. <laughs> Yeah, and uh, I kind of wanted to do something different. I didn't think that, like, a bar needed another... Like, New York didn't need another bar that was serving meat and cheese plates. So I, th- I thought it would just be fun to see what, you know, what people wanted and, and just kind of, like, just started cooking and just, you know, got really creative with it. And, and what were some of the early dishes that began to guide the path for what what is now the Achilles Heel dinner experience? Yeah, I mean, um, I think the dish that like really clicked for me was the was the rice and schmaltz i mean it was just like the simplest (laughs) the simplest dish i don't even know how i kind of put it on but it's um it's just like sushi rice mixed with a little bit of koji and uh we i mean at the time i was make i was uh balling it up into little onigiris um but we kind of just like tear it now and and we crisp it up and finish it with chicken fat and it's Everybody who has it is just like, what is this? <laughs> I mean, it's an incredible dish. It's so simple. Yeah. I could eat that day in, day out. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's so craveable. And did you yeah. feel, and I think this is really important, did you feel because it was wide open and Andrew was not totally tied in other you, that you had much more time to try things? And and you talked about that in early days, you were both the manager and, and the cook. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, there wasn't even that much revenue expected from your endeavors. Yeah, I mean, it wasn't even a real position. I was just like, let's just try this out and see what, you know, let's see where it, where it goes. I think it will be fun to kind of, like, change the script of, uh, of food service, you know. Um, and, uh, yeah, I just kind of, like, ran with it, man. What's, what's interesting is that you somehow found something that's missing or almost extinct in New York, which is creative time yeah 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 i mean yeah also too it wasn't it wasn't like a restaurant service it wasn't like people start showing up at five and you have to have all these dishes ready you know sometimes i don't write the menu until five (laughs) it's like and i mean i'll I'll change a dish 
throughout the night too. If I if I just kind of like we do all the development of dishes like uh, you know during service or right before and also like being in the room too with 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 everybody and be able to interact with the guests is huge because I can I can see when people enjoy it or I can just like kind of engage with them they so just, much more. They just throw it at you. <laughs> yeah. You can just see like the spit into a napkin, <laughs> drop it on the change table. that dish. Change that dish. <laughs> Is there anything that the induction burner can't do? Is there a, a place that you've pushed it to that you thought, like, this, I can totally oh. take it to this place, but it, it just fell short of a, a regular gas grill or, or a range? Oh, man. You know, they short out on me all the time. It's just so... <laughs> it's, they're tough to work with. Um, I think, you know, turning it into a steamer was kind of great for me, and I really blew my mind. I didn't, you know, I never used an induction burner as a steamer. Um, and now that's been, like makes the vegetables taste really delicious um and uh but yeah obviously i can't you know i can't i can't i can't like sear meat in it either you know i can't like sear steaks it you know oftentimes when we have to do things like that it fills up the entire bar with smoke so mm. you gotta you gotta kind of be a little bit creative in how you're gonna execute a dish and not you know not just try to like sear everything not to sear every piece of fish or or meat that you have or in vegetables so yeah definitely informs the menu all right, well, we're going to take a quick musical break. Uh, then we're going to come back and talk about Hell Chicken. This is a track from the band Miami Drive, who was on Snacky Tunes a number of years ago. If you like this, please go back and listen to them in our archive. And we'll be right back with Lee.
Welcome back. So, May 2015, you take over Achilles' heel. January 2016, Pete Wells comes in and gives it the New York Times critic pick. He compares it to McSorley's Ale House with better food and calls the cooking thoughtful, engaging, subtle, and intimate. How did that change things? Uh, I mean, it was super flattering to begin with. I mean, huge. Uh, <laughs> did you know? So it's so funny. Uh, he he kind of the first time he came in, I I didn't I didn't know who, I couldn't tell I didn't know it was him. I didn't really know what he looked like, but he was wearing a beachcomber uh, sweatshirt, <laughs> which is is a bar in Wellfleet, and I, and I started like chatting with him about. Was it just well, a coincidence? Total coincidence. Oh, wow. That's so deep. That's <laughs> I know. so deep. Full circle. Um, and then I actually, when I went home, I was like, who was that guy? And then I started, like, you know, texting some friends, and then they sent me a picture. I was like, oh, my God, that was... <laughs> did, did he introduce himself? No. Oh, okay. No, no, no. Yeah. yeah, I had no idea. He just, like, Jedi'd you the whole time. Totally. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm just a normal guy. I'm just a normal guy. Exactly. Well, fleet, you say, huh? <laughs> yeah. Oysters, huh? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and so what did that do? Uh, did it change anything in the, your style of cooking? Did it change the people showing up? How does it affect a restaurant? <laughs> a star is different from a New York Times critic's pick, which, but it's still yeah. a huge acknowledgement for yeah. an induction burner food program. <laughs> I know. Um, I mean, for, for one thing, it was certainly so much busier i mean i remember the first week i mean we're not outfitted to like run a full restaurant i've been there <laughs> yeah so when that first weekend after that review came out man it was it was insane i it just like i was just trying to figure out how to how to get through it and and uh how to prep for it even you know um but uh it just i just knew that i was going to be cooking for more people around new york i think people were going to start coming out to Greenpoint and I was definitely thinking about that with the dishes and um, I wanted them all to have like a really good appeal to everybody and I didn't really you know I didn't want to be too pretentious with the dishes and too you know too over creative but just kind of be like make sure everything is delicious and uh, and uh, yeah I mean it was just it was it was bananas when that first opened up do people show up um, expecting something more than it actually was um, you know, that doesn't happen as often that often, which is crazy. I mean, I, I feel like people are more, um, surprised more, more often. Um, we, tr you know, we really try to over deliver, I, I understate things, um, on the menu and try to over deliver it on that. And then just a few short months later in August, a beautiful <laughs> article appears talking about <laughs> hell chicken. Yeah. In your own words, please describe what this magnificent Sunday night is all about. Oh, man. Um, well, hell, you know, I wanted to do a, a, a Sunday chicken, like a, a, a meal, um, kind of about sharing, about eating with your hands. And just um, I, I always just wanted to eat chicken in a bar, too. <laughs> I mean, it was my own personal fantasy. It was um, I really wanted to figure out a way to kind of make the the outdoor grill kind of a, the center of Achilles during the summer you know um and and kind of have something that was that's that we would have regularly and weekly um and just kind of had the idea to do chicken and it was just like a pretty you know humble idea at the beginning and but I was we were really focusing on like how to do it well and how to really um focus all the flavors and, and it just kind of like turned this like 
you know, whole animal butchery expression by like using every little piece and, you know, every each side dish is kind of accented with something from the chicken. So, you know, we have a broth, we have uh, sometimes a dirty white rice with the gizzards, we have liver on toast. It's just, you know, the schmaltz and the rice. And we try to make it all kind of like work um, in this like kind of like fun family family style way. Well, what's interesting is that the only thing that's on there is salt. And it's just the different yeah. places that it gets put in the fire. So, yeah. And you worked with Andrew Rumpler to build the apparatus. How yes. did you conceive it or did you say this, these are the steps I wanted to go through and mm-hmm. then he would come back to you? Or how did that <clears throat> contraption come together? I had, Man, I had no idea like what I needed to build to like create, you know, the – the, uh, Did it start with like the flavors you wanted in it? Not at all, okay. man. It just started like, okay, I need something to like light a fire on <laughs> on the sidewalk. And Very I, simple. <laughs> and <laughs> I just like drew something on a napkin and uh, you know sent it to Andrew, and he was just like, yeah, I'll build that. Cool. <laughs> I just sent him a bunch of dimensions, and then, I mean, it, it the setup had to evolve as it went on. It was like you know the first setup that I had was like pretty wonky, <laughs> to be quite honest, and like. You know, I I think I figured it out probably like a month and a half into like cooking the chicken after like watching it cook and seeing what I needed, see seeing where I needed the heat to be and like how I actually wanted to, you know, make it all come together. And, you know, got some bricks and started stacking them, you know, in certain areas and like figured out like hanging them. They'll absorb more smoke that way. And and then using the Dutch ovens where, you know, you can kind of trap all that heat and trap all the juices and then just, you know, setting up a grill to you know crisp up all the skin and how did you find your chickens or how many chickens did you have to go through till you found your perfect um, chicken? we've actually been working with um, mark jaffe from Snowdance farm for a while and uh he he works with marlo and daughters in the butcher shop he provides a lot of chickens for them so if anybody ever wanted that chicken they could probably get it at uh marlo and daughters um but also it's just one of the most delicious chickens it's it's like a it's a crossbreed between um, some European breeds and uh, an American breed, a Rhode Island Red. Um, and it's not like your common chicken. It's like a slow-growing chicken. It has all vegetarian feed. Uh, they're free-range. They also have, like, the most yellow, beautiful fat you've ever seen. Like, there are pockets of fat underneath the skin that just, like, kind of, you know, this as it cooks, it bastes itself you know, when it's own juices and, um, it's just like a really, really special bird. And I think through cooking it this way, I really, f- I was able to like kind of notice those subtleties in the bird so much more, you know, like cooking a bird from the Catskills <laughs> from wood that came from the Catskills and it, it all just kind of like came together. And I think, you know, the key was in the simplicity. What's interesting, too, is that Sunday night is typically or was typically a, a slow night yeah. in the neighborhood. What thinking outside of going <clears throat> into uh, just wanting to cook chicken of putting this on a Sunday as opposed to a Friday or Saturday night? <coughs> right. What advice right. do you give to other restaurants of trying to pick up these shoulder nights to create new revenue streams? Yeah. Um, you know, like Greenpoint is a very, you know, it's a very quiet neighborhood. And you kind of like you notice the trends throughout the seasons like. In the summer, everybody gets out of town for the weekend. Like, nobody wants to hang out, you know. But everybody comes back on Sunday night, and they're like, I don't feel like cooking dinner. <laughs> right. So it was a way to and, – and Achilles is kind of like a little slower in the summer than it is in the winter. It's more like, 
you know, the cozy fireplace bar that you go to in the winter. And I kind of wanted to figure out how to do that in the summer, how to make it a summer place as well. Um, and yeah, just, just kind of like thinking about your audience and your neighborhood and where you're at and, and just trying to like, you know, meet their needs as well. And, uh, it all just kind of worked out. And you just got back from being on the road in L.A. You cooked yeah. at Mad Capro, who we love, and Gusa, which might be the best restaurant design ever yeah. in the history of like what you want your idyllic deli. Incredible. So incredible. Yeah. Um, any future travel plans coming up? Can people get Hell Chicken uh, on the road, or do they need to come to Greenpoint? Travel plans. Um, I, got, I have a couple. Um, I'm going to be going to... Uh, the Catskills, I think, first week in December, which is right coming up. Right to the up. source. Yeah, right to the source. I'm actually not going to be cooking chicken, but venison. Um, I'm really excited about that. All the, all the details haven't been hammered out yet, but if you, uh, you can check on my Instagram for flyer on that. And then um, I got invited to Oaxaca City to um, to do uh, to roast a goat on a, on a mezcal farm, which I'm really excited about. And... Uh, so that's coming up in January. And then... Um, and do you think all of this has been as a result... I mean, obviously the steady growth, but Hell Chicken kind of took everything to another level? Totally. Yeah, I, I couldn't... I really couldn't believe it. It, it um, It's... Uh, I mean, we just did it in L.A. last week, and did, it was incredible. Does the apparatus travel, or did you have to rebuild... <laughs> did you have to build it out We rebuilt it. We rebuilt it. We, you know, I went with Dave Gould and, and uh, Andrew to Home Depot, and we just kind of like went got pipes and you know screwed them together and went to the patio section and got all these bricks and you know laid it out we set it up in jessica's backyard and and it, i couldn't believe it worked <laughs> i was just like oh we can kind of do this anywhere but um but yeah i might i might go out to back to california i think maybe in february march i'll do a couple of hell chickens out there so i'll keep you all posted well thanks for coming on the show uh i know Hell Chicken is closed tonight because of the wind, but how, will it be cooking off and on throughout the winter? What's it's, the plan? Yeah, I'm gonna. You know, it's not gonna be every Sunday, um, but we are definitely gonna be cooking with a fire all winter. Um, I mean, for New Year's Eve, we, we're, we're gonna have two standing rib roasts that are gonna be hanging outside. You know, either outside or next to our fireplace. So we're definitely gonna be using fire no matter what. Amazing. And where can people go to make reservations? Check if Hell Chicken is open. Uh, check on Hello. You can email hello at AchillesHeelNYC.com. And you can you know keep updated on our Instagram account, which is AchillesHeelBK, or my Instagram account, which is my name, Lee DeRosier. Well, Lee, thanks for joining us. We have the Darcy's live in studio up next. This is one of our favorite tracks from past Snacky Tunes episode, Lucius, Wilder Woman. <laughs>
Have you tasted the world's best cheese? Grand Cru Sirchois is the 2016 World Cheese Champion. Our partners at Roth, Wisconsin make this gorgeous Alpine-style cheese in the rolling hills of Greene County, Wisconsin. Grand Cru Sirchois is produced by hand in Swiss copper vats and finished by aging on spruce planks. The quality milk and careful craftsmanship bring out the award-winning light floral notes, nutty undertones, a hint of fruitiness, and a mellow finish. Perfect with Riesling and Muscat, Grand Cru Sirchois is a guaranteed hit for any occasion. Check out their other offerings at RothCheese.com. 
you'll discover Buttermilk Blue and their newest release, Prairie Sunset, the golden-hued love child of Mimolette and Gouda. You'll also find recipes like the Raclette Reuben and tomato tartlets. Everything you need to know about the world's best cheese is at rothcheese.com. Welcome back to Snacky Tunes. Jason and Wes, welcome. How's it going? Thanks for having us. The Darcy's. My mom would be pumped. She's a big Pride and Prejudice fan. <laughs> oh, perfect. Uh, your record, Warring, 2013 nominated Juno Award, 2014 Longlist Polaris Music Prize, and you have had your gear stolen, been held at knife point, and almost died in a head-on car collision. All true facts. Oh, yeah. Those are all things about us. What was the... Yeah, these are all facts that I found. Uh, Two <laughs> good, three bad. Those are all lies we put on the internet. <laughs> yeah. Uh, what was the knife point story? I'm going to just pick one. Yeah, well, that one was the most interesting because we, we were in um, soundcheck and this guy comes running into the bar and he says, you got to... It was like pretty, uh, relatively early on. In what city is this? In, in Ontario. Okay. It was a city in Ontario. And, and, uh, and, you know, like the city's Canada, it's like a friendly place. Like yeah. you're not too, too worried. Um, every so often you worry about your gear, but not so much. This guy comes running into the bar and he's like, you got you to gotta get outside. There's a guy trying to hotwire your van. And we're like, oh. And so we come, Jason and I come running out, and there's this kid. He's probably like eight, 17 or 18, and he's in the van, and he's got this like massive, like a huge, like Bowie knife. knife, like a big like hunting a knife, blade, like a serrated tip, and, and like like, a sh- like little sheath things out of it. And he, so he, so he's in the van. He's trying to start the van. The van's got like because we were loading in the so we didn't have. He had a lot. The gear was still in it and stuff, and. He was pinned between two cars, and then slowly as it started to unfold, there was, like, other people that he was with had sort of dared him or something, and he got into the van, and then he was in way over his head. And so we tried to get the door open, and we sort of had this thought that he he's probably not going to, like, murder us, but, he, you know, if he something was to happen, Small stick. he would get one of us, and the other one would get him out of the van, and we would deal with this. And we ended up sort of pinning, getting the door open, pinning him out, and he slipped through the other door, and he ran down this alleyway. Um, and somebody in the bar had called the police and he, he literally looking back at us to see if we were chasing him ran full tilt into a cop car coming the other way so we like signed up a bunch of merch and sent it to the jail yeah we sent him a little care package to his his cell for yeah. the night did, uh, did he ever get back in touch with you yeah, like, this record changed my life. Like, I'm not going to steal cars anymore. So, you know, we never got that. Okay. Huh. So if you're out there, <laughs> yeah. call me. If you're listening. I'm listening. Yeah. We have your knife. Yeah. yeah. So we do. Got... We still have the knife. It's it oh, in really? the van forever, yeah. Oh. Well, I mean, good protection. Right. Given your other poor poor luck moments. <laughs> yeah, right? <laughs> so you guys have been f- a band for almost a decade, uh, mostly in Toronto, but a little bit all over Canada. How has the evolution of the Toronto music scene grown and changed in the, the last 10 years? It's kind of interesting because there was that era of broken social scene, which I kind of feel like is one of the Canadian indie bands to get a lot of international. Of course, and label mates or yeah, and so they started. By obligation, we have to talk about. We have to talk about that. Okay, we've done that. We can move on. Uh, Just say you forgot it, and people just now I got a dollar. Yeah, exactly. Ding. But that was such a scene. That was such a you know uh, kind of like a cultural moment in Toronto, and all the all the different artists that were part of that group, you know, splintered off into their own projects, and it was kind of this big family. And then, even like Feist and stuff like that, like it really grew really rapidly. And they pioneered like a style, like, you know, like damn TV on the radio. Like that was like a genre that was made. And I think that was really exciting for a time. And now it's Drake. It's just like hip hop city. Drake has brought so many eyes to the city. A lot of rappers. It doesn't matter out. where we are in the world. Someone will be like, do you know Drake? Do you know Drake? Oh, well, oh you, you did it. Didn't you? <laughs> but it's great because we have like a, 
world-class city and like he brought a lot of eyes to it and like i like the idea that you know rappers come to toronto and like drake takes care of them and they do like the thing you know it, he really had that civic pride that really brought a lot yeah, of attention it brings a lot it. of respect and you know just kind of credibility to the creative scene in the city because i don't think we really have just one genre anymore if genre even exists anymore it doesn't it doesn't but so there's like bands that are communities that sound completely different you know there could be like there's this kind of like new age r&b kind of thing happening in toronto and this jazz scene and the hip-hop scene and they're all kind of friends but if you look at like the billboard charts like the weekend justin bieber drake like it's just dominating it right now so we're in a good place it's pretty incredible. i'm dual citizen as oh. well so but my family's from from montreal so i grew up montreal spent a little time in toronto and hung out at the the drake and everything yeah yeah so i knew periphery but just the evolution of those the bands you mentioned and drake i feel also just gave the the credibility outward to an already vibrant music scene that, right. that existed yeah it was there time. but i think now you can be a, a artist from toronto and some someone's ears might perk up Whereas for a long time they were like, oh, they're you're like, why don't you move to LA? You have to move to LA or New York to make it. And now I think that you know people are staying there, and it's making sense for everyone. How has your music changed? And I know that this new record is a, is a bit of a departure from the the older sound. How has the city influenced you outside of your own personal influences? Have you reacted to it, or has it just been an evolution that would have happened with or without the Drake acknowledgement? Well, sort of ironically, the the record has this sort of escapist vibe, so it's almost about other cities and we went after a lot of like sort of cliche american americana sort of ideas and i think that largely we wanted to stay a canadian band a toronto band at it at the core but there's this thing and i think a lot of people in the u.s don't really understand is that the canadian music industry there's a lot of grant money and it's really it's really fostering but it's it's insular so it doesn't you don't grow you can be huge like there's bands in canada that play like like football stadium sized venues and then they go to buffalo which is like an hour and a half drive and they play to like 85 people what do you think even with the spread of the internet and access to music what do you think keeps it so contained well we have we have cancon it's called can cancon content so it's like all the radio and music video stations all that stuff play a certain percentage of canadian music and i think that really helps it's like 30 percent, right yeah, yeah so it explodes canadian bands in canada because they have they're always it's super visible for people in Canada and then so much competition in the, in the U S even with the internet, it's still, even if you have like 50 or hundred fans in every city in the U S it's not really anything. Whereas you can have, you know, 20,000 people come to a show in, in Toronto or something. And that's a huge divide. So I don't know exactly what keeps it there. There's just so much fostering and so much potential to stay in Canada. You get these great bands that just do so well there. And then, and what are a couple that are huge in Canada well, like, that, it's topical for for us like the tragically hip or a big uh, canadian right. band um and but they did i mean they crossed over somewhat kind but not of, really they're they're, not, they're like the legends of canadian music they're right. they're like your bruce springsteen yeah or, oh, okay you know like and, and people down here just don't haven't been exposed they know, like, to like a the couple same songs way. Right. yeah right, they might right. you know head by a century they're, they're definitely not playing more than a thousand people and definitely not playing anything south of the northern states right because that's just a lot of people are crossing the border and stuff like that and um we're good friends with this band arkells that are becoming sort of the next big my dad is friends with the mom of that band oh, and they oh, yeah. always like when the boys come to town they should be on the show but it's definitely my dad talks to yeah they're one of the guys in the band's mom yeah and and they're great and they're huge in canada they're playing like two or three nights at massey hall and it's big 
And then doing some shows over the border, and it's like 200 people. Right. And they're great bands, and Sam Roberts, and... It, and it's it's kind of hard like from our side to, to tell if it sounds Canadian. Like, I kind of would like to do a little little listening test with people from, from all over and say, like, does this sound Canadian to you, or is what it just... What do you just... think... Well, you mentioned you want to, at core, remain a Toronto band. So, well, like, what makes mean, a Toronto or a Canadian what band? What I meant by that was that I like the Drake's sort of civic pride. I like that he's still from Toronto. He's not trying to pretend that he's, you know, from New York or something like that, right? He is... He's keeping that the references are there, and he's he's committed to the city and growing the city, which I really love. And that's all I really meant about being a Toronto band, because I don't want to sound like a Canadian band. And so we ended up making this record. I think sits outside of that sort of Canadiana sound, but I do think that is something that keeps bands in Canada. It's this, the references, the the metaphors, some of the stuff. Is and just, the influences too. I mean, I think we really tried to to diversify the things we we're listening to from different decades and different countries and you know different different you know influences and stuff but i think that some people kind of in that canadian scene are, are more insular in the things they listen to and the things they work on and so it kind of like feeds back into itself can we hear a song sure what are you gonna play first uh this is a song called miracle so it's one of the first songs we wrote kind of in our new batch of songs we you know we've been through a bunch of different changes in the last couple of years but uh we really wanted to kind of rework our sound and we didn't really know where to start but weirdly enough this song came out of like the first kind of push mm. and we followed it up with about a hundred other <laughs> demos and uh at the end of you know looking at the the mass of work it kind of became clear that the song was still on the stronger side so so we actually got worse at writing songs <clears throat> yeah but uh so this is the first song we put out towards the you know the new album just to say hello after being quiet for so long I'm at the edge of the sunset I'm looking in I'm not one for indecision I can hear my intuition Feels like time's in our hands But it's slipping through our fingers We don't need to be forgiven I'm not one for superstition I'm not one I'm not one To let go Oh, let go I put my money on a miracle tonight. It's gonna take us far away. I put my money on a miracle tonight. It's gonna take us far away. It's gonna take us far away. I'm at the edge of the sunset I'm looking in There's no time for speculation I do trust in our ambition We suck our fears to the river But they're floating to the surface Be yourself and all your brilliance Don't be one to ask permission Don't be one Don't be one To let go Oh, let go I put my money on a it's gonna take us far away I'll put my money on a miracle tonight It's gonna take us far away It's gonna take us far away Why I dream of me and believe in me doesn't matter now, nothing matters. Doesn't matter now. 
nothing matters. Why are I dreaming me and believe in me? Oh, oh, doesn't matter now. Nothing matters. Doesn't matter now. Nothing matters. I put my money on a miracle tonight. It's gonna take us far away. I put my money on a miracle tonight. It's gonna take us far away. It's gonna take us far away. You guys moved from a quintet to a foursome to a duo. And in November uh, 2014, I think you put out a really good statement that said, musicians need to acclimate to the circumstances and realities of the genre they work in and the results they hope to achieve. What, As kind of a mission statement for setting your new record up, where did that come from and how did the shift begin to move away from that insular sound you talked about to bring in these outside influences? Well, I think it's important, some people don't know about us, is that we started as a duo. Mm-hmm. Like, we were making records together or working at it since we were young, and then we sort of expanded and then realized that maybe we were obnoxious control, control freaks and didn't want to let anyone else help anyway. Um, but I think that that statement in that article that I wrote was slightly uh, hyperbolic in the sense of calling a shot a, a much ahead of actually having something that we planned on doing. And I think it was important to get us sort of in gear to work on something new and exciting to really force ourselves to push beyond the boundaries of our abilities. And in doing so, we just evaluated what we thought made great music, what made a great record, and what would push us and push our boundaries as writers and and creators and, and to try to write sort of these songs with a pop lean or whatever um, really took a lot out of us and it was a really different way of writing music than anything we'd ever done before and that's what was at the core of it was sure that there's the ability for much greater growth uh, economically speaking but also for us as writers it was the only thing that was really natural in a way to push the boundaries because otherwise we're just going to make the same record we did before we'll get a Juno nomination and a Polaris nomination again and it'll all be the same and it was like well why are we not, and it's, it's not out of uh, insecurity or fear, it's out of excitement to just be something different and do something different. Do you, feel, do you feel that it's still attached to the core identity of the band? Sometimes bands will put music out that are so far from it is that you same, you know, almost name it only. Right. Uh, that's but just different genre, different feel. I mean, the concept of selling out also get, gets introduced. For sure. Do you feel that it still sticks to the original identity of, of the band while introducing something that is a, a huge departure? I think that, that the irony being that this record, this style, the branding, the look is much more in tune with who Jason and I are as people than a lot of the records we put up before. And we sort of had this epiphany where we were up there on stage and going like this is not that like the shows were getting people really supportive and i i still i'm happy with those records but we were up there going like this isn't that fun this is Mm. the energy that we're giving off and the sound that we're creating and the energy that the crowd is giving back it's just sort of it's not the place that i want to be and when i'm up here and i want to see people having a a better time and i want to make any trouble and i think that had we made like a 
country infused EDM record, then maybe somebody could have been like, you sold out. <laughs> yeah, I think that the, the whole concept of being a sellout in, involves like not being proud or, or really caring about the quality of your work, you know, only designing it for commercial success. And I think, you know, the, the reason it took us so long to kind of reformulate what we were working on and where we were coming from is because we wanted to do with the same attention to detail, the same, uh, you, you know, care for the quality in the song and in the production and then recording as we take, as we took on, on the other records, just with maybe more of a nod to, uh, at least playing with conventional song structure and playing with, you know, more open, optimistic themes. And how are the old songs woven into the new sets? How do they play up against each other? I think some some are more of a challenge for us to work in, and uh, it's really there's a couple others that. It's funny because the growth on this record and the singles alone, because the record's been out for about two weeks now, is crazy. So we we were in Montreal two nights ago. Crowd was amazing. The energy was so high. It's one of those shows that you just dream about because you get on stage and from the first second you start playing, everyone's into it. And about the fifth song we played, the river which was like the big song off uh, our last record. And I would say 75% of the people in the room were like, what song is this? <laughs> like, where did, what are you doing? Who, is this a cover? Like, I don't, what is this? And there was just this moment where you're like, whoa, like all of these people are brand new fans. Yeah, they'd, they'd heard this new record and this is what connected with them. So that's partially a challenge because you would think that those would be like the hits in the, in the set. People would be most excited about knowing a song that they know intimately or have had time with, but. And then um, someone will come, come up to you and be like, why didn't you play that song? Like I've been, I've been a fan for years. Like win, you owe it. Yeah. And you're like, damn, there's no way. There's, yeah. But anyway, we've sort of massaged them. Some of the ones are playing a little bit to make them work in the set, but, uh, I mean, it's only been centerfold's only been out for two weeks. Right. So you, but we're, you, we're you definitely guilty of that thing where, you know, bands like we're going to play a couple new ones Ooh. and the crowd, you know, for a couple of shows right before the record came out, you know, the crowd's like, okay, well, this is interesting, but we don't know these songs. And, you know, I would say maybe 60% of the enjoyment you can get from going to a show is kind of being familiar with the material. So yeah, we were like, okay, we'll just, you know, but it's, hold flipped. on, we're going to do this, but it flipped so quickly. Yeah. The second the record came out, like we just noticed a shift and, it's wild, like people, you know, singing along every word to like even deeper cuts on the record. I'm I have like, no idea how people learn. I don't even know the lyrics. <laughs> I wrote the lyrics. I don't even know them, and like they know everything. It's crazy. Can we hear another song? Mm-hmm. What are you gonna? Is this an old one? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> it's a cover. This is it's the oldest cover. song. It's a cover of one of our old songs. Uh, this song is called San Diego, 1988, and uh, I feel like in a way it kind of encapsulates the spirit of uh, a lot of the things that we were going after on this record. And uh, we also did like a fun kind of quirky little lyric video performance thing uh, that kind of came out of nowhere and has made, uh, it's, it's been a conversation piece. So it's really helped grow my personal celebrity. Yeah. Quite a few <laughs> Wes's mustache being a, you know, a major player, a character in this whole saga. It's only Sandy. There go 1988 and we could go all the way down to Mexico. We could go, I could drive the night through, follow the interstate. There's no reason to wait, no reason to
should go I don't wanna take it slow We could go, I could show you things you never know There's no reason to wait No reason to projects you guys work on that I also think is really interesting is your support of the public school music programs. How did you get involved in that or how and how long have you been working in that area? It was one of those one of the other so I, when I wrote that Huffington Post article that we were just talking about another thing when I was writing for them was I put out put it out there that we would come sort of in protest or helping encourage these students to speak their mind if they wanted to keep music education alive in Ontario schools because there was a lot of uh, talk about cutting the funding. And I said, we'll come and play if, you know, you can get your teacher or your principal in touch with our manager and we'll come do a free show. Thinking we'll play like four shows or something, right? Like, cause I, I didn't, not that I didn't have faith in, in the kids, but I didn't know that they would mobilize as, as well as they did. And so we ended up playing a lot of shows and it was really, really great. Like the, and also um, I was really, we'd do these, we'd play uh, like uh, four or five songs and then we would do these interviews. They're sort of uh, Q&A sessions and they were so smart and so interested and had such great ideas. And I think it really helped. Like there's a lot of uh, chatter about it and, and people definitely were talking about, you know, losing their programs. And we were getting, you know, so many great um, people involved and helping out and a lot of the press and in, especially in Ontario, were really chipping in to help make more of uh, an impact and people taking away this. Cause that was a big thing for us growing up being in music in school and being able to play especially if you don't have money and you don't have access to an instrument it's the only way you can learn so it was really important to us something we were really into um and i was just like blown away by how welcoming everyone was with it what were some of the or what was one question from the kids that totally turned on your head like why there was only white girls in our music videos like and things like that like just like more farther you know when you think they'd be like what's like uh, being on tour like <laughs> But they were like really introspective questions about 
about trying to make it as an artist or yeah like diversity in the the image that you're presenting as a band or as a brand and and I, I was really taken back. I thought they were really great, and and they, they were really um, interesting. And also, in the end, you end up um, with a lot of you know fans and and kids that you still hear from every so often. We'll get a message. They're so great. And it's really interesting too to like travel to all these different communities to see because you'd think that it was kind of level playing field with the public school system and the way music programs exist in some schools, but other schools would have nothing or just like a totally different thing. And so the you know the students in certain situations would never seen a drum kit before live and they would just want to be like can i touch it like can i look at it and you go to an art school where there's kind of closer to a wealthier neighborhood and the kids want to know what recording software you use and so it's like the the difference in in perspective that these different groups had was you know really enlightening to us to know that you know not 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 only should we save it for the you know the big school programs but maybe try to insert it in places where they don't have any access to and i think they were also which i found most interesting was that they're hyper aware of the antiquated programming of music education (laughs) and how learning a song from 50 years ago for a big band isn't maybe something that's engaging kids and and if they want to be djs or producers or mixers or whatever they want to do there's really simple and easy ways to get that software and, and teach it to kids beyond and you can even have a class where people want to play and people want to produce and they can very easily record each other and make sense of the whole thing and so we came up and the kids and whoever else had a lot of great ideas about how to make it work so it was a really re- rewarding thing and it made me feel a little bit better about the future did any of those kids form bands and send you their demos definitely and we definitely got a lot of demos like even the days of the shows we should roll up and they'd be you know there. and these days people come up to a show and they'll be like you played my high school like four years ago and you're yeah. like, wow, you're in second year university <laughs> wow like well, I want to make sure we get time for one more song. Thanks for coming out. Thanks for having yeah, us. Thank you, uh, for you guys are headed back to Toronto tonight. Like immediately. And we've, we've got some recording to do before our next couple shows, yeah. so we've got to get uh, that done. Well, the new record is out, Centerfold. Get it everywhere. But where can people um, find tour dates, get in touch with you, send you their demos? Yeah, right. Anyone that wants to send us our demo. i got to get like an email of somebody I don't like, and I can spout that all the time. Uh, thedarcys.ca is our website, and then we're all over Instagram and Twitter and all that stuff. So we're easily findable and demo-sendable. Okay. Uh, well, thanks to Lee for coming out from Achilles Hill. Please make sure to check out the next time Hell Chicken is happening. And please make sure to vote for Snacky Tunes uh, for our best radio and best podcast, bit.do backslash stvote. What song are you going to take us out with? Uh, this song is called Arizona Highway. And we actually just shot a video for it on a desert highway in a different state. <laughs> don't, don't tell anyone. Oh, we won't tell so anyone. there's a little uh, background information there. But yeah, we had this uh, amazing opportunity to go down and uh, pick up this beautiful 1979 muscled out El Camino and drive it out into the desert and uh, tool around for a couple of days. And it's just kind of funny to us because, you know, being from Toronto, writing this escapist record about hitting Route 66 and driving out to the coast and, you know, winding your hair and whatnot. is like us imagining something that we could do in cold winter Canada and then writing these songs, we ended up recording in Los Angeles, New Zealand, warm, nice, tropical places. And then all of a sudden we're out in the desert in the old car doing the thing that we were writing the song about in the first place. It's kind of an interesting way in which, you know, the, the creative side has kind of folded back in and actually become a reality. So Perfect. Well, yeah. thanks for coming on. Thank thanks, you. everyone. And we'll be back next week with it. Oh, actually, we won't be back next week. It's Thanksgiving. We'll be back in two weeks. Happy holidays. Happy holidays. Take it away.
Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.